You are listening to the Kensington Church Podcast, recorded live in Michigan. To learn more about Kensington, visit kensingtonchurch.org. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. How is everybody today? We're like good on this side of the room, and this side of the room needs a little work. That's okay. I'll come over, and I'll get y'all in here in a minute. Hey, for those of you who don't know who I am, my name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at the Clinton Township campus, and we want to start by just saying welcome. We are so glad that you are here for our Christmas Eve services. Now, I don't know about all of you, but I get pretty jacked up for Christmas. Um, Some of you can judge me hardcore in this next statement, and I'm totally okay with that. Um, The day Halloween is over, I'm actually good with the Christmas decorations. Yeah, I got a clap right here. Couple other people in the room, the rest of you, that's okay, we're good, we'll pray for you, you know, right? (laughs) If celebrating Jesus early is tough for you, it's okay. Um, No, but uh, man, Christmas, Favorite day of the year by far for me. There's, there's no day that trumps it for me. Like, I'm all about my birthday. I was just thinking of this. It wasn't in my notes because that's the day where the kids kind of have to rub my feet because it's my birthday, right? And there's a little guilt trip from their mother. But I was talking to April, too, and, and, and this is safe for me to say. Like, our anniversary, not quite as good as Christmas. And, and you agree, right, babe? Yeah? So uh, <laughs> she nodded for those of you that didn't. So, but... But you see, what I've actually come to really understand, at least in the Karshner household, Christmas is so much more fun and it's such a better season, actually specifically because my wife is part of the household with us. Like, like I do a bit for Christmas because I love it, but she definitely takes the lion's share of the lifting when it comes to this holiday season. Like, she coordinates with the North Pole and Santa, keeping the magic here, right, to make sure that things are in stockings and under the tree. She coordinates so these little elves come to our house and they, like, do different activities. The other day, I walked into the bathroom, and there were two elves, like, sitting on the toilet paper as if they were using the bathroom. There was chocolate surprise there, too. We're all hoping it was chocolate, but, like, who really knows what happens up there at the North Pole? We have this advent calendar, and every day we pick a card out of it, and it's got a a fun activity that we do with our children. And if I was in charge of the activities, it would be us watching whatever Christmas special is on TV, to which my kids would whine because they hate live TV, right? Uh, And we would then go to Netflix, right? Can can anybody in the room that grew up 7 o'clock Christmas cartoons, right? You had one chance. Can I get an amen, right? Yeah, like, there was no recycle of that, and there are some things that I'm responsible for. I bring all of the bins out of the basement up, so April can decorate. Yes, see some of the gentlemen as well? Yep, that's my job as well. I get on the roof to put the Christmas lights up there, because the queen of the household should not have to go on the roof. Can I get an amen, men in the room? That's right, taking care of the ladies, but uh, there's so much fun. And this buildup that happens for Christmas. And what I've really understood, even in preparation for this, is how much better the day is because April is with us. Now, I'm sure a lot of you feel the same way. And you can think of an instance, whether it's Christmas or something else, that your season, your day, your moment is a little bit better because of somebody who is here with you. Now that means, if that is true, that also something else is true as well. That there are moments in our life where having somebody with us just isn't our favorite thing, right? Like... Well, somebody really has that one person. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have thrown shade at you like that. That's Now listen, the other thing, I don't want to see, I know some of you here with your in-laws and family, don't you be elbowing your spouse or looking at your mother-in-law or your daughter-in-law, because I will call you, I'm not above calling you out from stage. I think we've all seen that. But no, this happens, and it's a reality for us in our lives. 
I've got a safe little example. Me and my wife, well, she particularly, just had a baby girl about 10 months ago. So this is the newest addition to our family. This is Tenley, I know, right? (laughs) Tenley Monroe Karshner. And I just want to tell you, she brings joy to our household like you can only know and understand if you're a parent. But if I am honest, there are moments where her being here with us is not necessarily the greatest thing. They typically start right around 8 p.m., and rolls all the way through the night. So this little girl will not sleep unless she is in mom and dad's bed, right? And not only will she not sleep, if you take her out, like this death scream ensues. And it sounds like somebody is in there with a buoy knife, like just, just twisting at her. And I know a lot of you are thinking, I'm gonna stop and give Adam and April some parenting advice. Bro, I have six children, right? <laughs> like, like, I've done this a time or two, and it doesn't matter what happens. I'm sure age will, will change this, right? That she is going to be able to be in our household and not in our bed, right? But what we come to understand through this silly little example is there are times, there are moments where having people with us in our life is one of the greatest experiences we get to be a part of. But there's also aspects where sometimes it can be part of our greatest frustration as well. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are out there thinking, what in the world does that have to do with Christmas? It's a great question. I am so glad that all of you asked. That's what we're going to talk about here in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to pray. We're going to receive our offering, and then we'll roll into this idea. So, Father, thank you for this time. I thank you that we get to celebrate Christmas, the the remembering of when you actually came to be here with us. I think a lot of us have some misguided ideas of opinions, and they're very valid and brought about for good reason. But my hope today is that we will have a little bit better of an understanding of who you are and what you coming meant for us in our lives. So be with us in this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So our ushers are going to come to the front now. Um, They're going to pass around these little offering bags. First, let me say, hey, if you are a guest, this is your first time with us, we don't want you to feel any obligation like you need to participate in this portion of our message. I know some of you have come prepared to do that, and I want to say a big thank you to that for it. Because... Our giving and our serving is what enables our church to do a lot of the things we do. If you've been coming over the past six weeks, at the end of the year, we show a bunch of videos about the impact we have been able to have in our local community, domestically, in the United States, and even around the world. And it only happens because of the generosity of those of you who come through our doors. So truly, thank you for how you give. Um, If you are not traditional and you'd like to give in a new way, there is a number on the screen you can text. You can give instantaneously. We have an app or a website as well that you can use. And as always, if you've got one of those three ring binder things at home like my dad had, some of you, this is called a checkbook. Some of the older, you know, what are you talking about? What is, uh, yeah, amen. We've got an amen over there, right? So, uh, all right, let's jump back to this idea of people being here with us. See, in our faith, what we believe is the Christmas story is literally when God inserted himself into humanity to be here with us. And I know that as I say that, there's a lot of you that grew up in church or have a church context, and that elicits a lot of really great feelings and emotions for you. You've been pursuing this relationship with Jesus or this dynamic with God, and because of it, you've experienced things in your life like peace and joy and those types of feelings that every single one of us really long for and strive to have in our life. But I'm also not so naive to believe. And in a room this size with this many people, there are a lot of you when you hear the idea of God coming to be with you and no such emotional feeling comes to your mind. If you thought God was actually ever to come into your presence, you would be thinking fear, rejection, wrath, 
and anger. So when we talk about God being here with you, there's no desire, no emotion to have that be a part of your life. And I just want to take a moment and acknowledge you have some really good reasons for feeling that. I don't know, I'm sure a lot of you maybe went to a church sometime or maybe you even felt it here and from me and if you ever did, I just want to apologize because this is never my intention. But the way that a pastor or a teacher or a preacher brought out a portion of the Bible and they just lit into it made you think that if God ever did come into contact for whatever reason, he would be that angry, wrathful, vengeful, judgmental God. Or maybe you have a coworker or somebody that you have been in your life, and if they're quote-unquote a Christian, if they're somebody who proclaims to be a follower of God, you want absolutely nothing to do with a God who looks and acts like that. See, all of us have a past and a story and a reason why we believe something specifically about God and about who he is. But if you've thought that, what I'd like to do is spend some time in actually saying maybe God is a little bit different than how it is that you've seen him represented or experienced him here in this life. When I was in high school, um, I went to a really small high school, so I got to play a lot of sports just because volume of people. There wasn't a lot of us, right? And so I played in the winter high school basketball, and a lot of you think, oh yeah, that fits. Well, if you're new, this stage makes me look about six foot one. And I am really pushing 5'8 up in this piece, right? So basketball, not my greatest calling. Let's just leave it there. But my senior year, we were actually pretty good, and we were playing um, our rival in our own league, which is a school that was much bigger than we were. So we didn't have a, a lot of success, but this year we were coming, and uh, there was a kid on their team who I knew because we'd played against each other growing up, and he had a reputation in the league as being a dirty player. Right? And just to give you the context, in the first game that we played, within the first quarter, I had taken a dirty LO and one of his knees off the side of my face. And neither of them were in the context of anything closely representing a basketball move. So this guy had a reputation, not just on our team, but throughout the entire league as a player who would do things like that. Now, fast forward a couple years, I was actually home from college on Christmas break, and I grew up in an Italian family that liked lots of food and lots of people. Anybody? Can I get an amen in the room? Yeah, right? Christmas at our houses was fun, and my mother would invite tons of people over. We would actually have a group of people that would come for dinner and another set of people that would come for dessert. And we invited a family friend and came to find out one of their daughters, who was about my age, was dating somebody. Guess what guy she was dating? The schmuck. Yeah. Yeah, the guy from the other town. And in that moment, like, he comes through our door, and I've got a decision to make. Am I going to make a judgment of him and how I'm going to interact with him throughout that evening based on that experience that I had in a very limited environment in high school, basketball? And it didn't go that way. We actually started to talk, and I realized, like, he was a great guy. Right? Maybe he matured a little bit from high school, which is what most of us do, but he was actually like a wonderful person. We got along really well. We hung out. We actually played in some basketball leagues together after that. And what I come to understand, if I had not given him a chance, if I hadn't given him a different opportunity, I would have never got to know this individual that was a little bit different. And the reason I share that story is I think a lot for a lot of us that have a bad opinion of God, that is exactly what he wants to do. So what I want to spend the next little bit of time is showing you what I think the character of God is, as it's revealed specifically in this one passage, but throughout the whole Bible. And as we see it, we get to see what it is that he actually thinks of us and what it is that he feels of us. And in order to do that, we've got to go all the way to the very back of the Bible, the very beginning. 
If you grew up in a church environment, you know that's the book of Genesis. And if you start reading it very quickly, you'll find that uh, the author is describing that the way that God creates the entire world that you and I experience now. Now, I know a lot of people get hung up on the fact if that happened over a super long period of time or maybe a long period of time that wasn't near is is significant. Like, I don't want you to get hung up on those details because they're actually not even close to the most important thing. We actually have staff that do what I do, and some of us believe in the shorter time, and some of us believe in the longer period of time, because that's actually not the most important thing that's happening in this dynamic. But if you've read the story, you know that God creates the world, and the last thing he creates is humanity. We're specifically told that there's a man and a woman that get made last, and they are brought together to create this unit of community that actually exists in a perfect environment where they don't have to deal with what a lot of you and I have experienced in this life. Specifically, the text says that God carves out a garden for them, and their job is to care for it. And in this garden, there's no death, there's no sorrow, there's no fear, there's no anxiety. There's all of those things that we would rather not deal with are what this world looks like. But somebody isn't thrilled about the garden existing in that type of way. Continue reading, there's an angel who actually turns away from God. His name is Lucifer, more commonly referred to as Satan or the devil. And he hates the garden. He hates what it represents. He hates what God is doing for humanity. And he hates every part of it. So he inserts himself into the story as a serpent in order to get Adam and Eve to do the very one thing that God told them they shouldn't do. Sure, most of you know how the story ends. Adam and Eve take a piece of fruit from the one tree they weren't supposed to eat from, and in that moment, creation changes. And the reason that happens is because sin enters in. And in that moment, Adam and Eve's relationship with God actually changes. But the funny fact, the fundamental thing is, is God isn't the one who initiates a different type of relationship. It's actually Adam and Eve. See, if you read that text, you will see throughout it that there's this indication that Adam and Eve had this relationship with God where they talked with him, they walked with him in a certain way that's hard to understand how you walk with God, and we don't really get the details of how we happened, but we know that it did. They interacted with him in such a way that when God's presence was coming to the garden, they were like a child who sees mom or dad coming home from work, and they would run to him. But after they ate that fruit, they realized that something was different. Something wasn't the same. And they actually decide that they're going to hide from God. We have that in Genesis chapter 3. It says it like this. When the cool evening breezes were blowing in that garden, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking around in the garden. So they hid from him. They hid from the Lord in the trees. First time, first interaction that they have had with God where they don't run to him. You see, up until this point, evil wasn't a thing that was known. There actually was no wrong. Like Adam and Eve existed in an environment where there was no wrong. They didn't have an ability to understand what it was because there wasn't anything that they knew that they could do that would fit into that category. There was one element that they had to stay away from, and it was this tree. But when they did that, everything changed in that dynamic, in that aspect. And all of humanity started itself on a different trail. But what I find fascinating is how God responds. That verse that actually talks about Adam and Eve hiding, and you could see that their theology of who God is was a little bit wrong, because God actually wasn't somebody that you could hide from. 
There's this moment where God actually comes looking for them, right? And, and they think they're hiding, but he doesn't jump down and start shouting at them or yelling at them. He actually comes and he asks them, why is it that you're hiding? Why is it that you've moved away from me? And in his interaction with them, I think we get to see their heart. I think that we get to see the way that God not only looks at you, but the way he looks at all of us when we step outside the bounds of his will. And what happens is God says, I gotta actually take you out of this place now. The garden was created in a way and you're no longer fit to live here. And it wasn't because of what you did. It's actually because of what existed in the garden. See, we know about that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but there was another tree planted in the garden. It was actually called the tree of life. And it was placed there specifically so that man, woman, humanity could eat from it and live in this perfect state forever. But now that they were in a broken world, God had no intention of leaving them in that environment living forever because what he knew is that experience would be awful. I see, I think all of us long for something better, something greater in this life. And I, God actually uses that to help us look to something different, to look to him. And he said, I'm not going to leave you in this environment. I'm not going to leave you to operate like this. So God actually talks about it. And he says this in Genesis chapter 3, a few verses later. It says, look, the Lord God said the human beings have become like us. They know both good and evil. What if they reach out and take the fruit from the tree of life and eat it? then they will live forever. There was no desire for them to continue to exist in a state forever in that garden. In the same way, there is no desire on God's behalf for any of us to live in the state that we exist in in the here and now. And this is the moment, actually I believe, that God knew this and was planning it for millennia before where he would actually start a plan. He would start a plan to do something which would bring all of us back to the state that he initially created us for. Some of you will know this story, but about a decade ago, there was a boat sailing off the coast of Nigeria. And the boat was a tugboat, I think it was a fishing vessel, but as they were going, they hit a wave in just the perfect way that tipped their boat completely upside down and very quickly submerged it underwater. It fell all the way to the bottom of the sea, which was 100 feet deep. And I don't even think there was time for anybody to relay or call for help. And the entire crew instantly got swallowed up to this so badly that every single one of them, save one person, didn't make it out. But there was a man named Harrison O'Keefe who found an air pocket, and he got into that that air pocket and he was able to survive off of a can of sardines and some coca-cola literally giving him a little bit of nourishment but not enough that would be able to sustain him and I just wonder what it would have been like for that man could you imagine being submerged in a boat? It is completely dark. You have no semblance of how much time has passed. You're wondering if anybody even has any contextual understanding that you are in a place where you're not going to be able to get out unless they come for you. See, the reason I share that story is after the garden, it actually paints a very vivid picture of where humanity is on their own. If somebody didn't intervene, if somebody didn't interact on our behalf, we're going to be just like him, living in a state where we've got something that gives us just enough of what we need, but not enough to sustain us or get us out of the position and the place that we are going to or that we would long to be in that God actually has for us. And we're waiting. We're waiting, we're longing, we're yearning. You see, I really believe inside every single one of us is a desire to be found, a desire to have somebody love us in the most deep, impactful, vivid kind of way. And so what we do is we look for that here on earth. 
We look through it through good things, through relationships with our, our spouse, or even sometimes through money, or through coworkers, or through a job, but none of those things have an ability to satisfy that longing in a way that we all yearn for. And I actually believe God made it that way on purpose, because he never wanted anything filling the role that only he was able to give to us. Because what he knew, what he understood, is there was a day where he was going to enact a plan. 740 years before Jesus ever came to the earth, there was a man named Isaiah. He was a prophet, which meant he took a message from God to the people, specifically when there was a Jewish nation. And he spoke about the sign where God would say, hey, my plan's coming into play, and this is how you're gonna know. It's Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14. It says this. Therefore, whenever it says therefore in the Bible, it's an indication to the reader. Pay attention, because what I'm about to say is incredibly important. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, the world got dark. The world got ugly. It got bad. It got messed up. And because of that, you and I experience the brokenness of it that we have to deal with each and every day. But God's reaction in that moment wasn't to come down and bang on us and have that righteous, holy anger that just rips us, that makes us fearful of him in the context of that is what a father is. I don't want anything to do with him. No, he actually comes to Adam and Eve tenderly. He asks them questions he wants to show them where it is that they are and what, what they did, the consequences, yes, that it has, but he's doing it because his ultimate plan is actually to bring us back. His plan is to do something different. You see, God looked at me, a really messed up sinner who's done some pretty bad things, some pretty awful stuff, and he said, I don't care about those things. I actually care deeper about you. You go to the very first page of the Bible. It specifically says that humanity is unique and special in a way that no other creation is. It says that we were made in God's image, we were made in his likeness in a way that nobody else was and because of that, when we stepped out, God had a decision, was he gonna step in or was he gonna step back? And the thing that he did, a theme throughout all the Bible until Isaiah prophesizes it and then Jesus come, is I'm coming. I'm coming to get you back. I am going to insert myself into the mess of a world so that I can have you. That's what Emmanuel means. Emmanuel means God came with us, not to yell at us, but he came to win us back. He's looking for me, he's looking for you. He has been looking for us and he will not stop until we come to a place where we find him. And not only that, but we understand who he really is.
At that time, the Roman Emperor, Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David, and you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, 
Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. That is the story of the birth of Christ, the reason we celebrate Christmas. But are we letting things get in the way during the season that Jesus almost seems forgotten? rejoice over something, it's, it's celebratory. We get excited. But the problem with this is if we have a bad picture of who God really is, the message of him being here with us isn't something that we're going to be able to celebrate. It's not something we're going to be able to rejoice over. Because we see him as a villain. 
seem as a villain as somebody who hates us or at best is only pleased with us when we are obedient and we do so much good that actually stacks up in a certain way. And the message of Christmas, the message of the garden is that is not who God is. I said before, if you go back to the garden, like if you go back and you look at the way that God responds to Adam and Eve, he's actually pulling them out of something is horrendous for them. And what he's doing, it's actually a foreshadowing, which means he's showing what he is going to do in the future. And that's exactly what Christmas is. See, just like the garden, Christmas is a moment where God looked down and he saw our mess. He saw all of the difficulty that this world offers and presents to you and me. And he said, I'm going to insert myself into that situation. I'm going to insert myself in because they're not going to be able to do anything if I don't. Christmas is a wonderful time of the year. And I love the cookies. I love the, the decorations. I love the presents. I love every single part of it. But the reason that Christmas is special is because when God inserted himself into our story, he looked at you, he looked at me, he looked at us, and he saw what would happen to us if he didn't do anything, and he said, they are worthy, so I'm coming. I'm coming into their story, and I'm coming in because I'm gonna bring them back. I will not leave them, I will not forsake them in the horrid state that this world it is. It wasn't just about getting Adam and Eve out of a garden. It was about then God coming to earth in the form of a man to show us exactly what he is like. There's a verse in the Bible that says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And what that means is he is a clear picture. You want to know what God thinks about you? You look at the life of Jesus. Jesus is a perfect representative of who God is. So if you wonder the way it is that God thinks of you, the way he would interact with you, you look at the life of Jesus and you will clearly see demonstrated what it is that God thinks of us. One of Jesus' disciples said it like this in John chapter 1, verse 14. He said the word. The word is a poetic way to describe Jesus. The word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. Jesus took on the form of a human body, exactly the same that you and I did, and he lived the exact same kind of life that we did, one of fear, one of anxiousness, one of sorrow. If you're familiar with the Easter account, there's the few moments leading up to the cross where Jesus knows that he is going to die, and he is literally stressed in the most significant kind of way that he does something, he drops, or he sweats drops of blood, like he knew what it was like to be human. He existed in paradise and he left it and waded into the mess of this world. And the reason that he did that is he looked at you and he looked at me and he said, they are worth it. I'm coming to get to them. And the reason he came is because we could not get to him. So he had to come to us. God came to us because we could not get to him. You see, when Adam and Eve were in that garden and they were scared because they were naked and there was emotions and feelings that they couldn't understand, God inserted himself, not to yell at them, not to ridicule, but to care for them and to take them to a different place to start the process of creating a better way back to him, or the only way, I should say, back to him. He came to us because we could not get to him. That is why Christmas is special. That is the wonderful part of this story. 
when Harrison was capsized in that boat, <laughs> he was waiting. He was longing because there was nothing he could do to get himself out of the situation that he was in. I watched a, uh, or no, I read an article where they do this online interview, and, uh, or they're talking to him, and the divers said when they, they got down into the water, they thought it was strictly a recovery mission. They didn't think they were gonna pull anybody out that was still going to be alive. So when the diver reached out to grab onto Harrison, he grabbed his arms, and to his surprise, something grabbed back. There's this moment of elation and joy because the man was alive. And the thing I want you to understand is that is exactly how God, that is how Jesus interacts with us. There is going to be a moment, maybe even more than one, in your life where he is going to reach out. And I believe in the gentlest, tenderest, tenderness kind of way. He is going to put his arms on you. And in that moment, his hope, his desire is that you latch on that you latch on so that he can bring us to a different space to help us occupy the difficulty and the hardship that this world throws in each and every one of us. I went online and uh, they actually have the video of Harrison interacting with the divers after they found them. You see, what the divers understood in this moment is Harrison was not out of the woods yet because he'd been underwater for so long and the process of them getting him air and his body coming up, there could be some things internally that would happen to him that even though they were saving him, the process would be such that it would kill him. And I don't know if it was a diver or somebody who was on comms, but there's a moment where the, the man is either talking and, and, and the diver has Harrison. He's having him look right at him. He says, Harrison, Harrison, I want you to listen to me. We're gonna bring you home. We're going to bring you home. We're not going to leave you here. We're going to do everything it takes, and we are going to intercede on your behalf to get you back here. And the reason I share that with you is that is exactly what God was doing in the garden and is exactly what Jesus was doing when he inserted himself into our story. Jesus came for one reason. It was to bring us home. See, God sees the awful state that this world is, and actually, he understands, and I want you to understand, none of us were created for it. God's desire was not for any of us to live and be in the environment that you and I have to be in and interact with on a day-to-day -day basis. His desire is such that he wants to remove us from this, and one day he will. One day he will take us away from it, but he's not gonna drag anybody. He's only gonna reach out and take those with him that want to put their hands on it and bring them back. And this is not about obedience and all of the things that you can do wrong. So hopefully one day at life, if there is that judgment where God looks at us, he says, okay, now I've got the checklist and look, all of your good things actually were this high and your bad was this high, so you get in. <laughs> and then somebody else, you know, their bad outweighed their good, so it's like, oh, sorry. It's not gonna be the place for you. That is not at all what following Jesus in faith is. Actually, it's where Jesus says, I don't care about what you've done. I don't care who you were. I don't care the depths of the worst places of your heart. I've come to pull you out of that. And if you come to me and you follow me, I will remove every single part of that from you. And though it will be hard, and though you will still make mistakes, I will journey with you and I will walk with you in this world to give you something the Bible calls an abundant life until the day that Jesus comes back and brings those who have committed to follow him home to be with him forever in a state that was far closer to the garden than anything you and I will ever experience. 
Tim Keller is a, uh, he was, he actually just passed, a theologian and a thought leader in the Christian community. He is brilliant. Um, I was listening to an interview with his uh, biographer, and they said, we're pretty sure Tim had a photographic memory. This man could have done anything he wanted to, but he ended up giving his life to the declaration of this message of Jesus. And he talks about the difference between all of the religions of the world and this religion, this faith of following Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, the founders of every major religion in the world said, I will show you how to find God. I will be the one who will direct you to him. But here's the difference. Jesus said, I am God, and I came to find you. Just like those divers who swam through the canals and the part of the boat and whatever it took to get to that boat, just to recover bodies, Jesus actually knew that there was some of us that would reach out and grab on, and his longing, his yearning, and his desire is that every single one of us would grab on. He came because we couldn't get to him. He came because he knew there was no way that we would be able to get there on our own. When God looked down the halls of time and saw what it would cost him, he said, I don't care. See, a lot of us, when we are about to do something, we typically ask some questions. What is this gonna cost me? How much time is it gonna take? And what's gonna be required of me? And then we decide if it's something that we're gonna do. When we stepped out of balance in the garden, God didn't ask any questions. He said, I'm going. And the reason that I'm going is what was lost is so valuable. There is no way that I will not insert myself into each and every one of their stories with the hope that I will bring them back. Another one of Jesus' disciples, a man named Peter, said that he reprised something that Jesus said. He said, I'm not willing that anyone should perish, but that every single one of them will come to know and understand who I am. And it is a very simple way to find that. One of Jesus' disciples, a man named John, talked about it. Actually, let me jump to this before I go there. In the book of Corinthians, another one of Jesus' disciples, a man named Paul, who actually hated Jesus. Before Paul came to understand and know what God did for him, he hated Jesus. His whole life was about persecuting and murdering those who claimed Jesus. But then he came to understand who he really was, how he died for him. And he wraps the entire theology of following Jesus into one verse. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and it says this. It says, for God made Jesus, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Jesus. You see, our sin demands a price, a price that we couldn't pay, a position that we couldn't get out of. So God said, I'm coming. I will insert myself in anybody who says, I will allow Jesus to take the punishment that you and I rightfully deserve will be entered in and become a part of my kingdom. And it has nothing to do with how much good we do compared to how much bad that we do. This guy named Paul wrote something else that speaks to this in Romans, and it talks about the way that we find this. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says this. If anyone openly declares that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Check this out. It's not by good works. It's not by your deeds. It's not by your righteous actions. It says, for it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Like, listen, we work 
hard and tirelessly, I think in some way, because we all understand there is something more after this life. And a lot of us are scared because we're not exactly sure how it is that we can gain it. So we play this dance of wondering if we've ever done enough. But the very simple, the very wonderful message of the garden and Christmas is God said, I don't care about that stuff. I actually came Because the only way to me is by believing. Believing that Jesus came, that he lived a perfect life, and that he died, and accepting that. And then going on a journey where you will mess up and you will make mistakes. My wife is right there. After the service, you can ask her about all the mistakes the pastor makes. And she will tell you. Because it's not about being perfect, and it's not about our good outweighing our bad. It's believing in the gift that was given to us at Christmas. It's believing in a God who is not wrathful and angry at you and wanting to just ridicule you into submission, but a God who actually wants to love you in. In the Christmas story, when God or the angels announce to all of the Christmas characters, each of them gets a little bit of a different message. But then there's one thing universally, every single one of them here. It happens to Zechariah and Elizabeth, who are the aunt and uncle, we believe, of Jesus. It happens to Mary, Joseph, and then it happens to the shepherds. And it is this. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. When God comes to us, his desire is not that we fear him, but that we see him, understand who he is, how he feels about us, and then we accept him. It is the message that the angels declared to the the shepherds. It is the message that they are saying, and that is God has come. He has come because we could not get to him. He has come to be here with us. You've been listening to the Kensington Church Podcast. If you've enjoyed this recording, check back weekly for new content. You can find Kensington on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and of course, at kensingtonchurch.org.